Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Douglas Rushkoff. He's a media theorist, futurist, writer, and a documentarian. The world's richest people are preparing for the end. They're buying up farming land and below-ground bunkers in New Zealand. But what catastrophe is it that they think is about to happen? And what happens if technology creates a techno-hell instead of a techno-utopia? Expect to learn what happens when you're invited to brief billionaires on the future downfall of the Earth, whether having your own sovereign nation at sea is a realistic idea, whether it's possible to live in an underground missile silo with an indoor infinity pool, what mindset is driving this techno-paranoia, and much more. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Douglas Rushkoff It seems to me kind of an inevitability. I've had a lot of conversations on the show about existential risk, talking about the work of people like Toby Ord and Nick Bostrom. Are we going to get turned into grey goo or a big bunch of paper clips? You know, this small background risk of a gamma burst destroying us all, or is the polar the polar uh, ends going to flip and then all of the technology is going to fall out? It seems unsurprising to me that the people that have the absolute most resources on the planet who are exposed to this kind of thinking, who are probably technologists in one form or another, techno-utopians, would take that, run with it, and think, I essentially have an unlimited number of resources. How can I try and insulate myself from this problem? That, to me, doesn't seem very surprising at all. No, but I wonder what the order of events really is. Is it, oh, I've got all these resources, so I have a lot of stuff, that's at risk and I want to spend a lot of my energy protecting myself or is it I've achieved my great wealth and all my technological monopolies and stuff by treating other people and places as if the world is already ending. So I really like to have some evidence that the world is ending so I can justify having <laughs> essentially used a bomb shelter mentality all along. How would you say millionaires have treated the world as if it was already ending, or billionaires have treated the world as if it was already ending from before now? Well, I mean, there's so many examples. Like one I just heard was on um, uh, a piece that Cory Doctorow, a friend of mine, wrote about uh, Epson printers. 
And apparently they make a certain Epson printer is pre-programmed to brick itself after a certain number of pages. And he interviewed the company to find out why, and they justified that there's a tiny little sponge somewhere in this printer that absorbs the loose dust. And after however many, five or 10,000 pages, they believe that that little sponge might be filled up and some of the dust might sprinkle out onto the filing cabinet or, or the piece of paper under which you get where you put the printer and to prevent that disaster from happening. And because you can't replace that two cent sponge, I mean, my God, that would be an impossible feat of, of administration. They will save us all by bricking the, com, com, the, the printer and forcing you to throw it into a, a waste pile somewhere, you know, a big toxic waste pile that some Brazilian children pick out to find the renewable you know, rare earth metals in it, and then send some other children to get the rare earth metals out of a mine to build a new printer for you. Now, the guy at Epson who makes that decision is not stupid. He knows I am contributing to climate change. I'm contributing to the end of the world by doing this, but I'm going to make enough margin selling an extra few printers that I'm going to be able to distance myself from the reality I'm creating by earning money in this way. So this series of decisions that are made, or the guy, the guy I spoke to at one of those uh, uh, food camps, who uh, was one of the guys who put the algorithms in the social media feeds that addict teenagers to uh, uh, you know clicking and whatever and worrying about themselves doesn't let his kids touch this stuff. He's got a private, you know, uh, uh, organic farm with a goat share. His kid goes to a Rudolf Steiner school and is not allowed to touch anything. So he's already got a kind of organic farm bunker in the middle of nowhere and behaving as if everyone else's kids are the ones who are being left behind. So if you've got an apocalypse coming, you can kind of say, okay, that's why I'm doing it this way. Mm, okay, so you're saying that a... A large apocalypse justifies this sort of zero-sum, me and mine versus fuck everybody else. That sort of mentality is right. is born out of that. On the one hand, yeah. And I guess on the other hand, what I'm looking at is this just a sort of uh, uh, innate techno geek nerd, and I share it sometimes too, fear of women and nature and unpredictable stuff. And a lot of us who got involved in tech from the very beginning liked it because it kind of creates a bit of order. I remember when uh, I was with Timothy Leary when he was reading uh, Media Lab, the book by Stuart Brand about Nicholas Negroponte's – oh, MIT's got this big thing called Media Lab. It was really the first place where they were building all the you know computers, the first place to look at digital. And Marvin Minsky was there and AI. And, and Stuart Brand wrote this book about – the, the media lab. And I was with Timothy Leary when he was reading it and he's circling everything with flare pens. And I'm thinking, oh, he loves all this talk about the digital future and anti-aliasing and, and, and robot consciousness and all. And when he's done with the book, he goes, Bleh! and he throws it across the room. Like it's this, and he goes, first, only 2% of the names in the index are women. Now, that's how you know they've got a problem. And then he said, and second, these guys are trying to recreate the womb. They, their mothers were unable to anticipate their every need, and now they want to build this, this technological bubble where they can sit and have algorithms and robots you know, bring to them what they want before they even know they want it. And so there's that kind of fantasy that goes along with the perfect tech solution that, that again, an apocalypse is a really good uh, justification 
for for wanting to to build that private uh you know private sanctuary uh it's kind of like permanently existing in a science fiction novel that has probably inspired a ton of the work that you've done talk to me yeah. about talk to me about what spending time with timothy leary was like oh it was it was great and a little bit horrible at the same time you know being with timothy leary was kind of like being on acid you know? kind like of a, like being on acid or well yeah sometimes it was it being was on acid being on, <laughs> sometimes it was being on acid but sometimes it was just like being on acid so it was um uh, uh a beautiful zone in some ways, but it was unforgiving. It was like he would, he would play, um, kind of dominant psychologist with you all the time, you know, reflecting back to you, whatever he saw as, uh, uh, you know, a neurosis or an impediment to whatever you were, you know, just say it. What? God, come on. You know, and it was, geez, just can't you chill? Uh, so was, the social mores, the sort of typical things that people would be allowed to just let slide, Timothy would decide to point the finger at it and call out the elephant in the room. Right. So it was a, it was sometimes a, a taxing. Mm, I have zone some friends. I have some friends that are like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I get it. You know, no, no, no compromise especially you know and i knew him by the time i knew him he was already in his 60s and probably thinking i don't have time for anything but you know and if you and if he did treat you like that it's because he considered you a friend you know someone who would come in a lot of times famous people would come into the house like an oliver stone or eliza minnelli or someone and do stuff that was obviously kind of 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 silly or egotistical or something and he wouldn't say anything till they were gone because he didn't see I also because they're high status people. You don't just tell Oliver Stone. I don't want to do your friggin ayahuasca that you brought in from South America in a bottle. I don't know what that is. You know, it's, uh, it was it was sort of that funny. OK, so yeah. when it comes to billionaires and how they've been preparing, I mean, I've seen an absolute ton of articles over the last five years, yeah. I would say mostly Uh the farmland that's being purchased in middle America. Um, New Zealand seems to be one of the most popular places. Uh, seasteading, um, these opportunities for people to air gap themselves from society in one form or another. Obviously, we've potentially got, you know, multi-planetary species not a million years away from now happening. Uh, how did you get introduced to thinking about this seriously? I mean, and I don't know if seriously is the right word, but certainly thinking about it was um, uh, this uh, talk that I was supposed to give to um, some you know wealthy tech investors. They hired me like they hire people like us. Basically, they think understand something about the future because um, we said something they didn't understand once. They go, oh, that must be a futurist. Uh, so they hired me to do a talk about the digital future out in the middle of the desert. You know, it's a big money thing. So I went, you know, so I subsidized my my thinking with. Uh, whatever that is, these, these kind of hired intellectual dominatrix <laughs> sessions. <laughs> like, Let's bring in an anarcho-syndicalist to punish us for our wealth. I love, you know, the, I love the idea of, you, of you, <laughs> you standing there, full leather outfit with a whip and everything, but it's a what? instead of you hitting anyone, it's just you gesturing with a whiteboard behind you. I could see that Yeah, happening. really? No, my PhD is my whip, right? Yeah. <laughs> But uh, they, they, so I'm, I'm out there to do this thing, and instead of bringing me to do the talk or micing me up, they bring the 
these five guys into the green room and they sit around this little table and start peppering me with all these questions about the future. And, you know, when it started out, the, the regular binary tech investor questions, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, virtual reality, augmented reality, you know, and I'm not the person to ask that either. I would have said Betamax instead of VHS. You know, I would have said CompuServe instead of AOL. I'm always wrong because I picked the better thing, not the one that's going to win, right? MySpace, whatever. MySpace gives us more. It's better. It gives us more. We can pick our own backgrounds, you know, or HTML, I would have said, you know, just I don't need friggin', you know, WordPress. Um, so I'm always wrong with that. I'm right about the big picture, but always wrong about which company to bet on. But anyway, so they're doing that with me. And then finally, one of the guys says, uh, so uh, Alaska or New Zealand. And then the rest of the thing, rest of the time was them uh, peppering me with questions and asking me about, you know, how to how to survive. And I was I was really shocked and started really asking them more questions than they were asking me. Like, all right, so how are you going to deal with, you know, germs and where are you going to get your water? And are you going to have your own fresh water supply? Are you going to be depending on uh, uh, underground water that's being contaminated by whatever happened in the outside world? How are you going to guard yourselves? And then they said that they hired Navy SEALs to come fly in. And it's interesting because it's always Navy SEALs. It's like nobody picks Army Rangers. It's like from my movie experience, I like Army Rangers, especially if you're on the ground. If you're not seasteading, I want Army guys, right? They're great. Something feels more, I don't know. I like them. I, I like their their media image, their movie, their movie image better than Navy SEALs for me in terms of my protection. But all of them had Navy SEALs. I don't know if they had the same ones, double contracting, all contracted to fly out in like helicopters to come to their thing at a moment's notice. And oh, then so these guys, asking, these, these yeah. Navy SEALs or whatever are on hair trigger alert to be wheels yeah. up within 90 minutes if the, <laughs> if the, nu if the nuke alarm yeah. goes off or something. Yeah. One of them has people at his plane all the time ready you You're know, if he had to go, to go, yeah, to one of two or three different locations. I'm like, geez. And then, but the thing that I asked them was, why do you think your Navy SEALs are going to protect you once the event is what they called it? Once the event happens, you know, your, 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 your money is going to be worthless at that point, even if it's Bitcoin, right? So why are they not just going to take over? Haven't you like read Machiavelli 101? Like, how do you, how do you take care of your, and they hadn't really considered that. And then they start, once they start musing on what they could do, like, oh, well, I could be the only one who knows the combination to the safe, you know, where the, where the food is kept. It's like, oh, so Navy SEALs have never tried to get secrets. <laughs> out of anyone before that would really stump them you're right or it's like or they was talking about implants that would be controlling who gets to go where in the compound and worst case they could be used for discipline it's like oh right navy seals are going to really respond well to being disciplined to the equivalent of shock collars so it was uh, uh it was just ludicrous so for me it just showed uh the the sort of almost middle school science fiction logic of of their scenarios and that it made me question the sort of the the visions of all of the tech bros these kind of you know whatever they are these kind of uh meta modern blue sky game b you know all these uh, theories about kind of rising from the chrysalis of matter as pure consciousness or you know uh, adapting to this great metaphorical future thing and i started to see them all in the same bucket as people who were, you know, for time, for centuries, afraid of women, afraid of nature, you know, afraid of the unpredictability of real life and actively fantasizing about the opportunity 
to escape, to level up, and you know, to go as Peter Thiel would say, from zero to one, or Zuckerberg to go meta, you know, or or uh, Kurzweil to want put his brain up in silicon. Everyone wants to go up, and it's like I don't. I, it's not a theory of change that I can really uh, take that seriously. So, do you think that some of these guys secretly are hoping, waiting? almost praying for this to happen in a way does it justify their worries and concerns does it offer them a better kind of life in in some ways well i think they're impatient for it to happen partly because they've been raised on western narrative you know on marvel movies you got to have your end game right <laughs> or, it, or it doesn't what did i pay my money for if i don't get the end game if i don't get the thing the the moment partly it's because they've got a kind of techno solutionist bias where they're used to just just reboot or you know, uh, uh, version two, version three, you know, let's go from web one to web two. Let's go from web two to web three. They just want to kind of that, that, that urge to kind of reboot up there. And, and yeah, it's, it's a, a, a way to, to realize that it, it's, I mean, I think of Steve Bannon kind of the same way, although for different, very different reasons, you know, Tear this thing down. This thing is corrupt. I mean, he's scared of these. He's the one of the only ones who takes all these Teal and Musk and the technocrats and great reset people. He's the only one who takes them really seriously. Uh, and 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 you hear it, you know, that, the, oh, no, these techno guys and Epstein and and implants and gates with nanobots and all, they believe these uh, technological systems are really coming that they're and that we the people through blood and soil are going to fight that thing but it's that same that, that what they share in common is this urge to tear this thing down you know when i see musk the way musk relates to biden and government and all that stuff it's like oh come on we don't need that we have a blockchain that or a blue sky or a program and and we could be free to be you and me in a totally different fractal that you you know old woke democrats can't understand let's just do it pedal to the metal you know that's it's sort of that drive what about seasteading did you have a look at that have you spent much time researching yeah. this on the one hand it'd be kind of fun you know let's go to the sea you know <laughs> I'd build my own little raft with solar powered propulsion and and eat fish and grow alfalfa or whatever and and desalinate what's alfalfa you know, it's like you put it on. It's a salad green or something. I think. Whatever. All right. One of those things. I, I, I thought it was a type of algae. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Or you could do algae. That'd be even better, right? Like blue green algae, or 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 uh, uh, what's that stuff that people eat? I forgot what it's called now. But there's all those little. Yeah, we could make that stuff. I mean, the 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 real fantasy though is for frictionless community that I can float my sort of hexagonal raft to the nation of my choice and attach to it. And now I'm in this nation of people all on their rafts and we have our own system of government and we approve cloning, but don't approve abortion. And we do approve this and that. And these are our rules. And we have a blockchain. We have our own currency and all that. And then if this country starts to have a rule or something I don't like, I can detach my raft and, you know, solar power float to that country over there. They got the rules that I want. So it's that it's that idea of of a nation with no skin in the game, with no exit cost. You know, it's like you could change as easily as you could change your cell phone company. You can change your your nation. And um, 
I don't think real community works that way. I think you do got to be with people who believe stuff you don't like and there's some rules that you disagree with and was was part of that not the justification for the way that the united states was put together though that you basically do have 50 kind of small countries all put together yes you're sharing a, a currency and a language but broadly it is you know you don't like it here you can move there what what's the what's wrong with somebody who wants to just up and leave when stuff doesn't go the way they like oh any federation is like that it's certainly fine for my mastodon servers you know you're on one and talking and you're like ah, i don't want to be on this one i'm going to go over on that one but they're all federated so that you can still follow anybody in any one of them no i mean in in certainly in a digital realm or in a brand loyalty it makes total sense as a way of of fostering long-term difficult relationships between people over time i don't know i I don't, I don't have a problem with frictionless. If people want to change their town every week and move around, it's just what is it biased toward? So when I look at the plan, when I hear them describing it, that if you don't like this, you'll just float away. It's a free market version of civics. And I, I get it, and there's cool things about it, but to me it betrays what it's all really about. It's I don't like the rules on your country – which they don't, right? We can't just develop tech. I'm not allowed to do all the cloning I want. And there's these regulations about genetic engineering. So I'm going to take my ball, my billion dollars, and go and make my own friggin' country out in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't do anything to me. And I have to do it out in the ocean because I don't yet have enough money to get my rocket ship, my Blue Origin, up to Mars and terraform that place. But when I can, I will, you know, see ya. I... I understand the place that this comes from, I think. You know, like personal sovereignty, Mm. individual agency, all of these things are things that almost everybody that I respect is pushing forward at the moment. You know, it's the the antithesis of the victimhood narrative at the moment. It's taking control and responsibility for the things that you do. I think that's pretty much a universal good. Yeah. I also understand what happens when you take that too far and – it encourages people to not properly integrate into the local group that's yeah. around them. Like, you know, you could say, and I see this particularly amongst dads, particularly, particularly amongst wealthy dads that are maybe late 40s to 50s. They have spent a long time building companies and acquiring wealth. And then they get to this stage and there's something about it where they – they seem to kind of say fuck you a little bit to the rest mm. of the world. And it's like a a retreat in a way. It's more individualistic. It's more atomized. It's it's like me and my family and fuck everybody and everything else. And I do, I do see this. I do understand yeah. what happens if you take that personal sovereignty thing and you roll it forward across many tens of millions of dollars and a, a, a lot of resources and a lot of spare time and a family that you don't want to have hurt. I, I understand how yeah. that, how that can or, come about. Yeah. Or a family you don't even want to be with anymore for that matter. <laughs> or you want to air gap yourself from everybody, including yeah. your ex-wife, right? Yes. Yeah. Or your current wife. Yeah. Uh, but I'll tell you, you know, and I, I haven't said this before and I'm, I'm in a lot of discussions about the origins of this and it's, it's, on the one hand, it is, and tr- traditionally, I kind of blame it on libertarianism and the, the West Coast 
uh, the West Coast kind of libertarianism that dovetailed so perfectly with techno solutionism. It was John Barlow telling us, you know, the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace, you know, nations of the world, get off here. This is for us. And we didn't realize if you get government away, corporations grow and, and roam free. So there is that that narrative is is an important one. And I don't minimize it. And I still feel like, oh, damn, when Wired came they, and blew Mondo 2000 out of the water. You know, when when the business guys came and turned the net from our great psychedelic rave space into this fucking techno capitalist nightmare. It's like, wait a minute. This wasn't. Why are you taking all this stuff public? Why are we having IPOs? Why are we after eyeball hours and all? So there's that. But the thing I haven't said, and it's probably too dangerous to say, and I might get canceled and whatever, but um, it's also an almost necessary or it's an almost inevitable response to Marxism, you know, and Hannah Arendt wrote about this in, in The Banality of Evil and in other places that Marxism, not workers' rights, but Marxism as a kind of a, a scientific version of workers' rights has as a kind of an end game this total equality. It's like, I understand we don't want anyone to be deathly poor that they're that they're sick and can't have an but there's poverty there's inequality that's sort of what happens in in a society and this this almost scientific desire to annihilate all forms of inequality is itself provocative to the self-sovereign individual Right. So uh, and you could look at it on the on the personal level. If you see, oh, my God, everybody's getting canceled for everything here and there and there and there. And then I think back, you know, there was a girl in middle school. I mean, before sex or anything like that, there was a girl in middle school that my friends convinced I really had a crush on her my, and and kind of told her. And then my friends convinced me, no, no, it's not cool. You're going to be hated and not liked and whatever. And I I ditched her for no reason. That, you know, I mean, that's as bad as, I mean, I'm, 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 there's all sorts of equivalents of that, that a whole bunch of guys look at a cancellation movement and think, someday it's going to be me. They're going to come for me. Or those of us who are involved in social justice understand that the social justice terms that we use in one year may be obsolete in the next year. And the video of us saying the thing that was appropriate in one year then becomes bad word to use the next year or or the year after. So when when people sense that that there's this moving target that they will never be able to meet and there's no wiggle room, there's no uh, 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 a place for reconciliation or apology or uh, or error. Um, it does it it activates a, a, a reverse pull to something, you know, total self-sovereignty and anti-woke and fuck them, I'm not, I want anti-woke, I want to use bad words. And you look at a musk and you're, and it's, and it's on that level, it's refreshing. Oh, he's not taking no shit from nobody. He's going to, you know, call Hillary this and call AOC that and ha ha. And he's not afraid. He's like pre-canceled. Um, so there's, there, and, and there's that energy behind a lot of these escape fantasies, I think, of like, wait a minute, society's getting too woke. So when you hear like Jim Rutt, who's a really smart, um, um, 
He's a smart systems theorist. He used to be the head of Santa Fe Institute. And he's the main guy behind something called Game B, which is a place like where the idea is we're all living in Game A now, which is regular competitive society, but we can elevate and go to Game B, which is the next phase of human existence. And he always talks about the obstacle to it as those woke people, those goddamn woke people. And so I, I understand uh, wokeism as an extension of Marxism and Marxism as um, a, a version of Marxism as this trigger for people to then do this other thing. Ah, uh, okay. So, so the reason that yeah. the, Jim Rutt? Yeah. Yeah, the reason that Jim Rutt is saying that the difficulty in moving from game A and ascending to game B being the woke movement is not any of the first order effects of wokeism. It's the second order effect of the knee-jerk reaction when the pendulum swings back against wokeism, which is hyper-individualistic, it's atomized, it's doomer optimism, it's Elon Musk shitposting his way through AOC, it's QAnon, it's all of this stuff. Right. Well, he might be, I don't know whether he's a first or second order effect of it, but yeah, um, I think he's more in the camp of partly game B is to get away from this stuff. I mean, I think he's a first order, he, he's in the first order effect of it, but yeah, and it's, it's, it's tricky and it's because, and again, this is really hard to say because it makes it sound like there's an equivalence and there's not, I don't mean to equate right and left or Trump and AOC or anything like that. There are different degrees. There's way different levels of stuff. I mean, I would way rather, you know, be in uh, AOC's country than, than Trump's country. But there's, uh, uh, the problem is not just Trump and his cronies. They are the, they are the figures. They are not the ground. They're the images. They're not the atmosphere. It's the atmosphere itself. That it's as if the air we breathe has become totalitarian, has become that in this, is this extremist thing. It's like an accelerant. Like we're not breathing air. We're breathing nitrous or something, you know, like nitrous does to an automobile. Right. And, and everything is, is amplified and accelerated and extreme. And I feel like any political movement, any cultural movement now on whatever side of the political spectrum it is, ends up um, kind of revved up um, partly by the digital media environment that we're in and partly by whatever, whatever this thing is going on um, in, in the air, that there are these currents that are moving things around. And, and then you got guys like, um, you have some wizards out there, like Bannon is a wizard, Musk is a wizard, that make it look like they're the ones actually doing, making these currents, but they're not. They're just uh, seeing them and riding on them. You know, I don't think Trump was, was did anything. I think Trump was more like Charlie Sheen. You know, there was this kind of standing wave of culture that was happening and he just jumped in it. It was like, ah, you know, so we look at him as the picture, but, but it's not, it, he just, he just, he just uh, embodied the phenomenon. It is very interesting to think about this, this knee jerk reaction. That's a model that I think I'm going to try and try and use as I continue forward. I mean, when you consider the prepping movement's been around for a long time, Right, you know, people predicting yeah. the end of the world and uh, trying to avoid alien abduction or whatever it might be, and then doomer optimism, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, uh, is a that's the middle ground version of this, and then the end game is the billionaires. And I had a look at th there's that company called v Vivos, 
They sell uh-huh. luxury underground apartments in converted Cold War munitions storage facilities and missile silos. So that's that's taking it up to absolute extreme. Yeah, swords to plowshares, baby. It's <laughs> it's almost biblical, right? Except it's not really plowshares. It's swords to shelters. Uh, yeah, I mean, they sell them. There's a, The ones I like are in Europe. They're called like Opidium or something. Those look nice. They have swimming pools and saunas and things. You know, I one just want to go guys, there. I, what, yeah. Do I have to wait until the end of the world right. or is there an opportunity we, for me to just I, go now? I know. That's the thing. Can't we just go now but not have to do it underground? So right, one of the guys, yeah, they, they, there was one, you know, one of them, and it's interesting because one of them was from a very Christian company called, I forgot what, Rising S Corporation. And they build, um, they take shipping containers and stick them under the ground originally for people for like tornado shelters and fallout shelters and things like that. Then when the, the rich people got into the apocalypse buzz, they're like, oh, there's a good business. So instead of just putting one, one train car down there you know they'll put like 12 shipping containers all networked together and they've got pools they got <laughs> heated pools and fake daylight and and I'm, i i one of that was one of the guys i was talking to was doing one of those and i was like dude it's like my neighbor has a pool not right but down there they have a pool and there's always a truck in front of there bringing some other part or gizmo that broke like a heater or a regulator you know a thermostat thing like where are you going to get that Where's that guy in your plan? Where's all the, you have a 3D printer making the parts for your pool? You know, can they do that yet? Of course not. And he's like, oh, he opens his little moleskin book. He's like, parts for pool. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you really worked this out, buddy. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, yeah. So what? looking at what you know about the current approach that the super rich have when it comes to saving themselves from the apocalypse that's coming, what are the most fragile elements of their preparation? Um, security, definitely. You know, they, they, any of them that are land-based, it, we can go take them over. There's more of us, even if, you know, a thousand of us get shot on our way in. Plus, if we've got motorcycle gangs with Uzis or whatever they have, I think these are very pen- penetrable. <laughs> These are penetrable. Uh, they're, they're, some of them have farms and shit. So there's that. The ones that are totally locked away, um, their agriculture systems are are totally self-contained. Uh, a lot of them have like their topsoil is in these little rubber tubes and then you try to grow. I mean, have you ever seen somebody doing vertical farming at home or whatever? You get a bad batch. It's like you get a bad panel and you just take it out and go get some topsoil and build another one or a uh, you can't do that when you're locked away, you know, or what do you do? You go out with a, with a crew with, with a couple of guys with machine guns to run and find some more sterile topsoil. But of course you got the nuclear fallout and the, you know, zombies and the killer bees and, you know, whatever it is out there that, that you're supposed to be hiding from. So the, the self-contained, um, universe, the, the sort of the thing that failed with biosphere, um, will fail with a lot of these because they think everything's going to regenerate. Um, so those are the, the those and and the, they're not really sealed from germs. And I mean, COVID got everywhere somehow. You know, eventually somebody's bringing something or a bird's going to poop, and you know, you're gonna you're gonna catch whatever people have. You know, as, as I see it, these things are they're so brittle. They're they're brittle from the get go. They're they're brittle. They're a brittle approach 
to survival. If you talk to a real prepper, and I have smart preppers, their their preparedness plans always involve the communities in which they're embedded. They prep by teaching people in their communities how to prep. They do foraging classes and farming classes and self-defense classes because they realize we the only way to be prepared is to be prepared together, not prepared alone. The lone prepper does not does not survive. How comfortable or uncomfortable is it for you spending time around people that have both the desire, means, and resources to be able to enact something like this? I had a conversation a little while ago with a friend, and, and he mentioned that he'd spoken to someone that's maybe in a similar position to the gentleman that had paid you to go and teach them how to survive the end of the world. And this guy had said, uh, I'm an apex predator. Apex predators don't need to concern themselves about what happens to their prey. And this guy, as far as my friend was concerned, was like, he meant it. Like, he genuinely believes that he is close to the absolute top of the tree of this entire planet and that the externalities are kind of the same as stepping on a bug. And that story stuck with me. That was like two years ago that I heard that story. It really stuck with me because I think, wow, there's there's people out there that that have that kind of mindset and that have the resources to be able to uh, live the philosophy that that mindset creates. Yeah. I mean, that's the mindset that I'm really writing about in, in my book. I mean, that's really what it's about. You know, most of the people want to know, Oh, you wrote this, book. how do I, how do I survive? What are your, te- what are your tips and techniques? And I'm like, no, no, I'm kind of trying to undermine. It's called escape fantasies of the tech, of the tech billionaires. But you're right. It comes from, you know, and that's why I look at really two strains. One is, is a, a certain thread of the scientific revolution, you know, which was Francis Bacon. And, you know, Francis Bacon was sort of the father of empirical science. And he's credited with saying that the the purpose of, of empirical science, the promise, is that it, it will allow us to take nature by the forelock, hold her down, and submit her to our will. Okay, great. So science is basically a rape fantasy, right? We're going to take nature by the hair, hold her down, and and have our way with her. And that's what science will let us do. Again, it's that apex predator's understanding. Yes, you are man. You are man. You know, so we can take we are in charge of nature. We can dominate nature. And as any truly enlightened person realizes, that's that's not even the way you get power, much less um the way you survive. You don't dominate nature. You learn to work with the patterns of nature, the the patterns of your body. You know, I mean, you, some of the stuff that you've talked about too, about uh, the natural cycles of of waking and sleeping, and if you learn the patterns, you you ride them and you become strong and healthy and all that, as opposed to trying to defeat the patterns of nature with what with speed and sleeping pills and Prozac and you know because you can't recognize you because you refuse to submit to the day and night <laughs> seasons. Sorry, there's seasons. You can't change them. Go with it. Just go with it. Um, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Sun will come out again. Um, so there's that. And then the the capitalism is the other one. You know, you talked about externalities. And externalities are built into colonial capitalism. In order for the markets to grow, which they have to grow because we're on this central currency, interest-bearing economic operating system. In order for it to grow, we got to take over more places, enslave their people, and extract their resources. And those are externalities, the enslaved people, the pollution. But if we have technology, which is the sort of the latest 
part of this puzzle, we can build a car that goes fast enough to escape from its own exhaust. There will be externalities, but those are other people's problems. You know, and if it's too much, if the whole world gets filled up with the exhaust, then, well, then we go. We get Blue Origin and we go to the next one. I remember having a conversation ages ago with a astrophysicist that specialized in detecting alien civilizations. So there's SETI and then there's METI as well. And METI is messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. And there's a lot of uh, big questions being asked around whether METI is even a good idea in the first place. And I asked, what are some of the most likely uh, signs that other civilizations would have? Because some would be underwater, some would be uh, silicon-based, some might have thoughts that take decades to go through, et cetera, et cetera. And he said that global warming, that uh, the uh, use of any type of energy is inevitably going to cause kick out of pollution into the environment, which has to change the environment. There are only a small number of ways that you can do stuff like smelting, uh, like generating any kind of energy and the externalities that you get from that. And it made me think like, maybe it, maybe it is the case that we can't techno utopia our way out of this. I have some friends that believe that the solution to the side effects of technology is more technology I know that you talk mm. about this, uh, but I know increasingly I'm, I know, I'm kind of a little bit less certain about that. I know. And then it's funny. I was talking with um, uh, Tyson Yunkaporta, who's this really smart um, Australian um, an indigenous person and scholar. And um, he says he thinks that Western civilization is in a state of depression after having seen the movie Avatar. Because <laughs> Avatar is the opposite, right? Avatar is a civilization that is basically expending no energy beyond you know, sort of what they eat and and you know the, the, beyond the their their metabolism of their bodies, you know, in harmony with nature. And it's this picture of something that we could I can't imagine how we could you know go forward to that. I mean, I was going to say get back to that, but you can't go back ever. But how could we move forward? And I, I do believe that the, the, the most sustainable and most fun society that we could live in would look a bit like a permaculture farm or something, and there would be less tech. I mean, I, I'm not anti-tech. I love tech, and it's been fun. It's been fun, but I love you know nature and people and flesh and stuff more. You know, and I don't know, I, I, if, you know, if we could, um, degrowth is a bad word, I won't say that, if we could sort of unwind simplify. a bit, simplify, yeah, there's nicer ways of saying it, we would, um, if we move to a situation where we don't need to, to have the GDP grow every year, where we don't need to do more just for the sake of maintaining the balance sheet, but we only did more that we needed to do more in order to 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 feed and clothe and care for other people. Um, we could get rid of a lot of a lot of unnecessary stuff, you know, uh, all the plastic that we're buying at Walmart and throwing away. And you know, there's just I get it. It's good for the economy that if everyone on the block has a lawnmower, it's better for the economy than if one person has a lawnmower that we all share. But 
it's a nicer society if we have one lawnmower on the block and everyone shares it. Yeah, so there's the ego, which is the embedded embedded growth obligation, right? Which is what you're talking about. The GDP needs to continue each year, etc. Yeah. It feels to me like there's an eco as well, which is an embedded comfort obligation that humans mm. never want to regress back to a less comfortable type of life than the one that they're in at the moment. Yeah, and th- but then we got to also then think about how are we defining comfort? You know, I guess it's more comfortable to sit in this Costco chair than on a rock, right? But there's, I don't know, there's, there's comfort. There's many kinds of comfort. Well, I mean, some, less, yeah. less comfort would come from not having spinal issues, you know, in your 50s, 60s, and 70s because you've not spent a ton of time sat down. It would come from suffering less with diabetes right. because you were moving around a lot more. The problem that you have is that what is good for you in the long term often feels difficult in the short term. So you'd switch out the C in eco for comfort for convenience, you know, an an embedded convenience obligation. Like, why is it that I should walk to the store to get my 10,000 steps in for today when I can Amazon Prime it and it'll be here by 7 p.m.? Why would I do that? And it it takes, I I always think about this. We've got a, me and my housemate have got a cold tub outside, right? Like, we've had to buy a, $5,000 piece of kit so that I can find discomfort. I elect to find discomfort and inject it into my daily life because my natural existence is so bereft of anything that looks even remotely difficult, right? I have to go out of my way to try and find podcasts or books that are going to mentally tax me. I have to go out of my way to go into a building which Mm. has a selection of handles with weights attached to them because normally I don't have to pick anything up that's heavier than a sandwich. Like, I am having to artificially inseminate so much discomfort into my life because the eco, that embedded convenience obligation, continues to get more and more and more convenient over time. And humans often mistake a convenient or enjoyable experience for a worthwhile one. And until I, I, I don't think that that's fixable, right. I, do, I simply don't think it's fixable to be able to get humans to look past this is difficult right. now, but good in the long term. Even if you'd given it to our cave caveman ancestors, even if you'd gone. Within one generation, you can go from rocks and fire and no wheel to all of the stuff that we've got now. Even they wouldn't have wanted to go back because it it is a race to the bottom of the convenience stem. Right. Although some civilizations didn't, you know, that lasted a long time in a sort of homeostasis. Uh, It has. Would they have ever got? They wouldn't have ever stepped into that technological advancement and then regressed back, right? They simply wouldn't have made the step forward. Yeah. Right. But of course, because they didn't move into the technological advancement, they got clobbered by colonial civilizations that did, right? See ya. (laughs) Sorry. If one civilization is putting 50% of its effort into munitions, then the one that's, you know, not putting any into it is going to get, uh, is going to get killed pretty fast. No, I hear you. I hear you. And the other thing, you know, is that technology accelerates that process. You know, when, when Kevin Kelly or any of the, you know, technology theorists talk about tech, they always say technology gives us more choice, gives us choice. But we haven't yet developed the capacity to make wise choices. We make, like you're saying, the convenient, the short term convenient choice. You know, and then on the other end, again, because of this, this totalitarian environment, on the other end of the spectrum, the so-called long-term thinkers are thinking about the civilization of 40 trillion bots spread out through the universe rather than the 800, whatever, 8 billion people alive today. So they go so far on the other extreme that 
wait a minute, what about just sort of uh, medium long term then? Just <laughs> the next 500 or 1,000 years. You know, let's look at that. It's a difficult one, man. It really is. Talk to me about, you had this story about a banker that went to Burning Man and came back and had seen a, a different side of the world. Yeah, well, it's weird. I get, I get invited to these, uh, these things. They always have the word human in them, you know, at, you know, festival of the new humanity or, you know, the next level of humans and the whatever. And I got invited to one of them and I don't know why I finally agreed to go to this one. Um, and it was, you know, a thing where they go and you got like a, a, some some shaman gets paid to come and, and chant a bit and you do guided visualizations. And it's all like hedge fund dudes and bankers and whatever that have like gone to Burning Man, done mushrooms or LSD or ayahuasca for the first time. And then they see the light, right? Oh, my God, I'm destroying the planet. And they come back and then they want to like process it with the spiritual people and the problem is they they have the insight and then they decide, oh, I should be the leader of the climate change revolution as if there haven't been people. Work. They don't want to join the existing climate change things. So I said to one of them who was like, oh, I've got a lead. I'm going to create a new organization that's going to aggregate the this and the that. And I'm like, well, have you heard of Extinction Rebellion or the Sunrise Movement or Nature Conservancy? There's there's out there. So I said, well, No. And if I haven't heard of them, how good could any of them be? It's like, well, you weren't friggin' looking. I'm telling you, this is your first hour as a newly minted climatologist. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't run the thing. But you see this all the time. You know, even, um, bless his heart, the owner of the L.A. Dodgers uh, or former owner, this guy started something called Unfinished and Project Liberty. It's this giant huge zillion dollar foundation to develop a multi-racial open democratic blockchain society and has this conference that he's doing in new york and this giant facility and invites everybody and it's like you don't have to but their ceo mentality so they want to run they want to be in charge of the whole thing. You know, so there's like all these kind of competing future of humanity efforts out there. Okay, so you're around the I mean to be I think that not knowing about extinction rebellion is a good thing as far as I can see. <laughs> they glue themselves to the roads in the UK and stop people from getting to work and don't do very much else at the moment. That seems to be their primary objective. Uh, well, they were based trying to be based more on kind of yellow jackets, you know, citizen councils and all. But I mean, there's problems in not, but you should at least understand the existing territory. Yes, if you're you, going to if you're going yeah. to step into a market, you'd usually do some research beforehand. I I mean, uh, that the word hubris keeps coming to mind a lot. Yeah, like a hell of a that'd lot. That'd be the one. That'd be the one. Yeah, and that's why I mean, it's funny, and that's why I I I sound like I'm. I don't mean to be an apologist for right or left or anybody, but their 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 hubris is almost more of a, a a psychological problem than than anything else. You know, it's like I don't I, I've read their philosophies and ideas, and I know while there's some problems in certain ones of them, none of them would be that catastrophically dangerous if we weren't like in this frictionless new space of kind of digital media. It's like everything's on ice. You push in a direction and what do you, you know, what do you mean? Keep, bring, bring that down to earth a little bit for me. I feel like, um, 
ideologies are more are more dangerous now because they're not tempered by community and the real world. You know, so you build an ideology, you're building it, okay, so Twitter is going to build blue sky and we'll have this space. It's not real. It's meta. It's it's um it's in a different realm or because of the way things get accelerated and amplified in in digital media, someone can say something that okay, let's take some time to unpack it. But before anybody's even taken a moment to unpack it, it's the guy's canceled by this group and becomes the messiah of that group and it's like no wait a minute let's let's let this mature let's discuss this idea let's you know so there's no um i feel like there's no there's no filter there's no governor there's no um uh, uh there's no way to kind of slow down or metabolize and work on ideas they just come out like as if they're fully hatched and yes and i suppose in that environment good ideas and bad ideas have equal uh, footing under the sun in terms of how and, quickly they can go viral. In fact, some bad yeah. ideas, you know, I I know about Extinction, Re- Extinction Rebellion gluing themselves to the roads. I, I'm, I'm sure well, that... Well, they didn't glue, but they sat there. But oh, no, people in the glued, UK have glued, they? yeah, people in the UK and in France have glued oh. themselves to the road because the reason for that is that the police have to come over with uh, with like anti-solvent stuff and yeah. they slowly peel their hands off. My point being that uh, there are other things that they've done, right? But right. what what I know about, what my primary exposure to them is them being dickheads in the middle of a motorway in the UK. Yeah. So it is just as easy for poor philosophies to grab a hold of the internet. In fact, it might even be more because outrage is so clickable. Uh, it might make it go even quicker. All right, so g- given all of this together... How how has this informed the way that you move through the world? Because you've been talking and thinking and writing about technology for quite a while. How are you dealing with the crushing weight of existence itself and, and, and not mm. losing your mind being exposed to all of these ideas? Um, for me, it, uh, by trying to slow down, to try to have less hubris myself, um, to, to, I mean, I'm on sort of book tour or something now, so I guess I'm talking a bunch. But to sort of talk a little bit less, um, to adopt the the comportment more of a kind of a country doctor, you know, I'm a, just a local country doctor looking at problems and and offering ideas, but not you know grandstanding great solutions, um, encouraging the, a multitude of local solutions rather than singular giant top-down things it's the it's the 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 hundred million dollar x prize you know geo-engineered let's put sulfur particles in the whatever in that atmosphere but those are the things that i'm sort of um although all of them are tempting because you just push a button let's see um i'm trying to engender a multitude of small solutions and give people more faith in their um, that doing something locally really does count, you know, and and trying to resist scale. And for me, it's tricky because if I see scale as the problem, you know, as as in in most cases, if scale is the problem, then how do I operate as like a whatever it is that I am, a writer and thinker, not at scale? 
you know, how do I, and, and I don't think, I mean, compared to a lot of people, I don't really have scale. I mean, Gary Vee has scale. I'm still, you know, on that, <laughs> in the Twitterverse, I'm, I'm a 60,000 person, which is nice, but not one of those people. Um, so it's funny on the one hand, I, I, it's sweet that I worry about scale operating at my scale. I'm like, Oh no, am I too big? Am I too powerful? You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm, I'm glad that I'm worried about it. But, um, when I look at it objectively, I don't think, uh, that that's really my, uh, that's going to be my great problem. Um, but yeah. And to try to get, uh, uh, uh person to person, you know, every founder that I can convince that it's okay to end up with $50 million instead of, five billion dollars is a win <laughs> you know? why why because if they don't feel obligated to make five or ten billion dollars with their company then they don't have to pivot to something awful and extractive you know, when you hear now mark zuckerberg saying oh i really i'm going to give back 95 percent of the money i made on facebook it's like well what if you had made facebook 95 percent less manipulative and awful and extractive you wouldn't have the world would be the world would be different now that kid, that poor kid, plucked out of his freshman year at Harvard, you know, by Peter Thiel or whoever it was, and he transfers parental authority onto this venture capitalist and pivots away from a, I just want to make a platform that's going to help nerds like me get laid to this, you know, data, you know, a data mining nightmare. Um, boy, um, we'd be living, we could be living in a different world. I mean, it would, probably someone else would have done it or would have happened some other way. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's scale. It's people being satisfied. It's just so hard. You know, again, it's sort of like your convenience thing. Once you get it, why would you go back? You know, once you have, you know, a million and a half Instagram followers, why would you un undo that intentionally? Well, you also see... I mean, Austin at the moment, and a lot of the people here are talking about homesteading. They're talking about community housing in one form or another, where they're going to, them and nine other families and their kids are going to go and they've got a hundred acres of land out in Lockhart and they're going to, they've been learning about regenerative farming and they, such and such a certain person's wife is a teacher and this person mm. is a doctor. And, you know, we're basically going to set ourselves up here. And I understand the, impetus because there is a direct line to draw from what you've just said there which is kind of this uh, more simple type of life where you are looking at slowing down but it doesn't take much of a change in direction for that to fall into the very um individualistic me and mine versus the world mentality that we were yeah. just lambasting 10 minutes ago like it's not that far away at all right and then you got to look, I mean, and, and while I certainly appreciate what those families want to do, I wonder, I guess not everyone can do that, right? There's not enough land for everyone to do that. We <laughs> and it's expensive. It's very, the only people I know that are doing that are, are pretty rich. Right. So they can go and build an eco farm with solar panels and hydroponic blah, blah under the ground and get their alpacas and goats and all the good stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's tricky. It's like the guys I know in the tech world who still go home to their organic farms with the with the with the goats and Rudolf Steiner tutors and whatever. Yeah. I I certainly understand the impetus too, but that's almost a that's a, a heavy lift. That's a heavy lift. And it it may it may go against some core simplicity principles. But yeah, I mean for me it's just meeting the people where I live, trying to spend, you know, less time online, more time helping 
you know, not assuming I know what's best for people, but what do they, what do they need? Oh, you just, you know, this woman needs a lift every Thursday to get freaking groceries. This kid needs a math tutor. You know, you do, you do what you can and it embeds you in your community in a way that, um, that feeds your, it feeds your heart a lot better than, you know, 60 likes on that tweet. You know, it, it really does. Okay. That's what you're doing on an individual level. And yeah. what's what's the fix on a more macro level? Is there anything that can be done or are we just along for the ride in the slipstream of billionaires at the moment? Uh, well, I mean, I think there are things that could be done. One, um, I don't think, and I know this is controversial, but I don't think the billionaires truly have our best interests at heart. A lot of them anyway. I think they, and the ones that do, don't. Um, the ones that do are deluded. Um, so I think that one one thing we can do is deflate their power by not using their platform so much, not buying their stuff so much. You know, I'm now I'm checking out Mastodon as you know the a new it's a, a alternative kind of Twitter social network place that's a federated nonprofity thing to see just because it's like I don't know if I want to support this kind of troll thing happening on on twitter and elsewhere you know i don't want a tesla either you know and it's not like i know musk is trying to do good things and uh and parts of his personality are are quite benevolent but others it's just brittle it's a brittle single point of failure you know <laughs> and i feel like there's there's some loose screws there that are that that may not uh, that, that need to be uh, balanced out with other people doing other things um, so yeah, I guess my, my macro solution is for everyone, um, to avail themselves of opportunities to, you know, engage locally, to realize that, you know, we don't all need opinions on every big thing. I remember when, um, my, my example, when, uh, uh, Biden was pulling out of Afghanistan, three or four different journalists came to me to ask me for their articles. What's your opinion of Biden's, uh, Afghan withdrawal strategy. And I'm like, I really know nothing about how you withdraw from a war. I just, well, just weigh in. I can't weigh in. I shouldn't weigh in. You know, and everybody's tweeting, oh, this and that and the other. I'm like, how many? What if we just set aside 100,000 of us as the experts in it? Just 100,000. You know, it's like I used to say, you know, every time that Britney Spears would have like a nervous breakdown, there'd be like 100 or 200 camera trucks outside her house. And I'm like, couldn't we cover this with five camera trucks and share the feed, you know, and maybe take the other 95 and put them in situations that matter to you know, war zones and learn about other stuff. So there's, there's that. It's like, uh, uh, the, the world, the big things matter, but we can take the weight off a lot of these big things. We can make, um, the, the macro problems less brittle by being more, um, self-sufficient, I don't mean self, but but community sufficient, locally sufficient, as as places. Uh, so yeah, find where does your food come from? How local can you get it? Where's your CSA, your community supported agriculture group? What's going on in your community? You know that most of us can operate at that level, I think, and you know have like representatives that work at these at these uh, more macro levels on our behalf. All right, Douglas, let's bring this one home. Where should people go if they want to check out the stuff that you do online? Um, Rushkoff.com is me. Uh, Teamhuman.fm is my lovely podcast. Um, and check out this new book, which is not 
um, as depressing as it might sound, survival of the richest escape fantasies of the tech billionaires, which the real purpose of this book was to be a comedy, to help people laugh. If we can laugh at these guys, um, then they're, the, the whole thing starts to feel less scary and, and urgent in that brittle way. And you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, right. I get it. They're just silly. Don't worry about them. They're silly. You know, don't, don't try to be Musk. Let Musk be Musk. And you can be you. All right, Douglas. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.